You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Kok Sinsang? Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. This time around, we're wrapping up the Hong Kong election uh, duology with Triad Election. It's also known as Election 2, which is a title that makes uh, a bit more sense. Even on the credit screen, it says Election 2 in English in the corner. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. We caught your son smoking, and we think he may have joined a gang. And uh, Alex. Hey, guys. Want to go fishing? Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, you look at when this was released. They do this with um, uh, Asian movies a lot in particular. I don't know if they film them back to back or they just have a tighter production schedule, but they'll have another sequel come out, you know, sometimes two in the same year or one the immediate next year after. Mm, yeah. And it. It helps, I think, with, uh, you know, the actors tend to be the same age. They tend to still remember how to play their character. It's a kind of ideal way to do it, I think. And, I mean, this does take place pretty soon after the original. And uh, overall, I think I found it to be a more intimate kind of story. Um, what was your sort of uh, first impressions of it, Thrasher? I really enjoyed this. And... Having watched this very soon after the original, I think I think everything hit harder because like mm-hmm. every everything that it echoes from the first uh, election uh, still very very fresh in my mind. Uh, there there's a whole lot of details in this film that if like you you will miss if the first film isn't fresh in your mind or something that you practically memorized, which I really really appreciated. Yeah, these are sequels you want to watch in close proximity. You know, you can you can wait a couple of years between a Godfather film, but if you watch Election, you're going to want to watch Election 2, like, next week or within a few days. It definitely pays to have the uh, recency factor there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is about these Asian gangster films or the ones we've been talking about on the show, whether it's Election or we did the uh, sort of original quintet of uh, the battles uh, without honor and humanity, but... The movies are so short, and yet they cram so much plot into it. It's kind of the opposite of what you see in, like, The Irishman. Uh, right. Or, or, you know, American or you can say, you know, Western kind of gangster films where they're kind of drawn out. And a lot happens in both of these films, but this, like, it's just yeah nuts. You have I mean, fewer scenes. Um, I don't know if you have fewer characters necessarily, but you have just as much, if not more, going on. Right. And it has, it has I, a I, lean running time, which I really appreciate. Oh, definitely. I mean, Johnny Toe could knock out the Irishman in like 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's something else that, that that is in this movie's favor is that it doesn't waste time trying to recap the first film. It yeah. it assumes yeah. it assumes you have you know what's going on because you saw the first movie. Although e- even then, it might not be hard to follow because when every character shows up, you you get really quick what they're all about. 
Oh, yeah, totally. And I think that's what I think is also funny um, is that you jump right into it and you basically collect that. Like, okay, Locke's been a good chairman. Everyone's making money. Everyone's really happy. He's a very good triad chairman. And um, it's funny because I almost actually saw this first because I remember I would just, when I first got Amazon or was familiar with Amazon, I would just type in like a Yakuza search, triad Mm. search. And of course, triad election was the first thing that popped up. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, this Johnny Toe guy, a triad movie. Cool. And then it's like the follow-up to his legendary election film. Like, oh, it's a sequel. All right, I guess I should get the first one first. But I think a lot of people did make that mistake. And it was a big marketing uh, flub on the distributor's part, I think, to call it triad election, not just election two. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine the, this film got a very, very limited like theatrical release in the U.S., if at all. Like, It might have just played the film festival circuit, which tends to happen with I way too many. I think it just got like a midnight screening at Cannes. Okay, it yeah, so maybe yeah. something to technically qualify um, for the Oscars or something. And I mean, it's really unfortunate how that still happens to a lot of foreign films, but that's a separate discussion. Well, what I also think is funny in terms of distribution, like um, the DVDs I have of this are from like Tartan, Asian Extreme, you know, when they're trying to sell these all these Asian films as like, you know, extreme gay stuff, like (laughs) Mondo violence. And in fact, like the Johnny Toe films are very, very much like the election films, especially take a lot of the gas out of violence and deglamorize crime. Very much so. I I will say it definitely deglamorizes crime, but uh, of every movie we have ever done for sequel cast, to and even going back to sequel cast one, mm. and I am counting the reanimator films in this. Yeah. If only because of one arc in this film, I think this film we see more brutality than in anything else we have ever done. Oh yeah, there's some uh, there's some uncomfortable stuff, and what I what I find so fascinating is that like it really lingers on it. Um, yes, I, for continuity purposes, I don't want to jump around, but yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> And I mean, Thrasher, I think you've forgotten we talked about the Saw movies, those had brutality, but that's kind of over the top. I, I would say, you know, cartoony kind of I wouldn't yeah. go that violence. brutality. That was just like gross. But this is <laughs> yeah, brutality. Right. This is very sure. willful brutality. Well, and more realistic. And like the camera lingers much like in the first film. Maybe this is Johnny Toe's style. I haven't seen anything other than his election films, but he, he does a lot of like long shots that almost make mm-hmm. you feel like a voyeur. And I, I love you did a series of shots when these characters are fishing and it's from the other end of the riverbank in the foreground you get these like uh out of focus lawn leaves of grass and the camera's moving and you can see in the kind of the background these characters and i know there's just something about this movie has a few scenes that are very tense and yet they're in complete daylight right and that's um it's very matter of fact, and I also love you get these bright daylight scenes, and then you also like the first one. You get a lot of these like kind of murky interiors. They're very shadowy. There's not a lot of light going on. Um, there's it's a you know kind of low contrast, and again, you're in like you know the basement of a building or you know the back room of a restaurant or something like that, and that's probably where a lot of shady deals do go on. <laughs> and they they really play that for contrast because I mean we'll we'll talk about the kettle scene in more detail when we get there. But the, the kennel scene is so dark in tone and so weirdly lit with those those uh, fluorescent lights. Like, you sort of assume, oh, this must be midnight in a basement. And then it turns out, no, that's hap- that all of that is happening at high noon when one of the characters gets sick and runs out of the kennels. You see right. that it's a bright, beautiful, sunny day. <laughs> oh, yeah, and also, like, gives you this feeling that like uh, you know have they been doing this all night into the day or you know have they been here for like more than one day <laughs> it's well really the film's unnerving. use of time gets kind of weird at that point because there, yeah. there are some 
there's some stuff that I can't help but feel should should be clarified as far as how much time has passed between certain incidences. Right. Sure. I, well, I mean, let's talk about the movie chronologically. But one thing I noticed real quick, both this movie and the, the triad election and the previous one were both official selections at the Cannes Film Festival. So, that's, yeah, uh, this was um, these were big movies for Johnny Toe, definitely. Mm-hmm. And uh, with all the these daylight kind of scenes and the matter of fact, look at the brutality. I'm wondering if this influenced uh, David Fincher in Zodiac, where it kind of opens with uh, a murder scene in broad daylight. Mm, yeah, I could see that. But yeah, um, Alex, why don't you start us off, kind of describing what happens in the in the opening, where because you you mentioned Thrasher, there's no uh, recap in this show. Yeah, we kind of just jump in. Um, Simon Yam, Locke, uh, his character Locke has been the chairman of the Wo Shing Society, and um, he's been doing good. Everyone's everyone's happy, making money. Um, but guess what? There's another election, and as we recall from the first film, that can really, uh, you know, that can really stir the pot. Um, uh, meanwhile, you've got um, up and comer uh, Jimmy, who's been uh, another very, uh, you know, building a very legitimate empire as a businessman. However, he is also a um he also has a functional uh triad and you know he's also a candidate for election so it kind of kicks into motion these very like machiavellian uh power shifts and, and manipulations and um our one of our leading characters Locke, is very much uh pulling the strings and you also have the elders kind of chiming in as to who they want to uh you know take the the seat of power within the the wosing Wo society right and it's you look at uh, Louis, various Louis Koo uh, playing Jimmy Lee, and he, he has he's, he's an actor with these very intense eyes, and I, I do like um, I mean, really kind of like Godfather 2 I guess you could say, he's trying to go legitimate, you know, he started selling pirated porn DVDs and uh, he wants to move his business to, to mainland China um, buying some property and so forth, and he uh, starts to, to fall into uh trouble with that a bit and as you alluded to thrasher there's a great scene with him and uh his son in the car yeah well there well or never mind that's not jimmy is it no no that's that's not that's Excuse not me, jimmy that's, that's lock yeah, yeah but when when you tell us about that scene because i think that's really neat you don't get to see the families too often in these movies Would, uh, well so so lock so part so part of his lock Locke's arc is he's he's got two things going on is that that one with the election coming up he's decided he wants to run again and apparently that's a big breach of tradition that the way the triads have always have done things for ages is that you don't serve consecutive terms it's possible you might not serve more than one term I was kind of unclear on that uh but since they never make reference to anyone else serving two terms non-consecutively I assume it's like your chairman once and that's it that's uh, and so too, yeah yeah, so his desire to run again is is you know making a lot of waves. But the other thing is, uh, his son is being bullied at school, but then falls in with the falls in with the bad crowd, and basically falls in with high school kids that are sort of setting up their own protection racket and are getting involved in crime. And, and essentially, they're doing exactly what Locke does, but on a smaller scale, and. Locke is having to reconcile uh, with that, and and that there's a great there's a great scene where he, by pure coincidence, there's this like little restaurant where he's on the second floor, clearly conducting triad business, and his son is on the first floor paying protection money 
to uh, some other kids who are then going to let him join their gang. And, you know, Locke comes walking downstairs. One of the sees what's going on, sees his son. One of the punks, uh, one, of the, one of the punks, like, you know, in, insults Locke. And Locke's like, oh, well, this jun- this amateur criminal is not going to insult me. And they get into a knife fight. Locke's son <laughs> freaks out and runs away. And, you know, and like Locke with a knife in his leg is running, trying to catch up to his, to his own son, realizes he can't. And so he just like, you know, tells his henchman, just wait for these slows down. Just pick him up, take him home. Don't frighten him. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's so, and it's so great. Like seeing sort of Locke, Locke having to deal with the fact that he is a criminal and now his son, whether he wants it or not, is being pulled into that same life. Whereas Jimmy, he talks very early on, you know, we're going to build a big house on top of this hill. It's going to have three bedrooms. What, uh, you know, one for us. There'll be another one for the kids, and you clearly, and their kids are going to grow up to be to be doctors and lawyers and politicians, right. and like he has such hopes for for his own for his own family. But we see with Locke what's going to come of those hopes if he stays on this criminal path. Like that's why it's so important for Jimmy to go legit, right? Because he sees what's going on, and I love that you get you know this isn't like you know. Again, like The Godfather, you don't have certain characters coming back. You have a lot of the same characters coming back, a lot of the same cast coming back. Um, and what I think is really interesting is that Louis Koo has top billing in this over Simon Yam, which is kind of a big deal. This is like, you know, Matt Damon getting top billing over, like, you know, Jack Nicholson in The Departed or something. You know what I mean? Like, not quite on such a scale of seniority, but um, it's really fascinating. So, like, you know, you see that Jimmy's ascended. Um, you can see that Kuhn has ascended. Um and you can also see that um, our kind of like thuggish henchman Jet is in hiding still from all the you know shady shit he pulled in the first movie at the behest of um, at, the, at the behest of Locke. And you can see that Locke is still very much pulling the strings and you know having him do all these things. And he's saying like you know hey if you murder this guy I'll make you chairman. If you do this for me I'll make you chairman. All the while while Jet's in hiding Locke is basically trying to run again. So you can you already know that he's just full of shit. I was so happy to see to see Jet back. Well, like anytime a character from the first movie just surprised showed up, I was thrilled uh, and kind of oh, delighted yeah. to know that they survived their injuries in the first <laughs> yeah. film. But like in the case of Jet, you know, two years have passed, and something that just struck me about Jet is that like he he is almost this sort of brainwashed brute in the first film. He will follow any order. Uh, he's kind of like ruthless, but in a sloppy way. But right. in those, in the two years between movies, he's become a very professional hitman and enforcer who is not making amateurish mistakes. He's still following orders, but he's following them not unquestioningly, but with purpose. Like he's a character that's clearly matured in, in, in a sinister way between films. Yeah. It's a, it's really interesting. And, um, you know, he has, again, like Louis Koo, he has these very, very striking um, facial features. You can tell he's got this, like, kind of this fierceness to him, and he plays that really well. And um, one thing that I think is fascinating is that the first guy he has whacked is, um, you know, he's got long hair, and he, he walk goes like, this guy's been spreading rumors that I killed his old boss. And then you realize that he's talking about Big D. Is okay. that that's one of Big D's guys that he takes out right in the broad daylight. You know, he runs up, walks, struts up in a freaking ski mask, takes out a a slicer and just cuts his throat and then just kind of nonchalantly gets in a van and takes off. That, that was a scene because I think I thought that was a beautifully shot scene, but at the same time, like 
why is everyone so polite that nobody like points and like and and maybe I guess it's it's a thing like I can't I can't quite interpret whether this is supposed to be played up and heightened so mm. that's why no one reacts to to Jet clearly looking to murder somebody just walking down the middle of the street in broad daylight or if it's or if it's a comment on people's sort of being complicit with crime uh, in their right. communities but that is a delightfully brutal scene and, and the guy he kills doesn't get a quick death. I mean, we see him stumble as he bleeds out. It's really difficult, difficult to watch. It's difficult to watch, but I like that they don't languish and like, it's not gory. There's no geysers of, of, of arterial spray or anything like that. (laughs) You know, he just, he sells it through the performance. He grabs his neck and rides around the street and it's like, you know, it's a uh, it's pretty painful looking and unpleasant to to see, and that's uh, you know kind of how violence should be treated most more often than not. Sure, I mean and, there there's another scene in here. Uh, I mean, there's more to this movie than just the executions, of course. But the one that got to me is this uh, this younger guy. They put in a a bag and kind of toss him into the um into the water. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. it yeah, and yet they go and. The guy's like a young guy, but he's been pointed out as a as a snitch. Right. And they just... At first, I thought they were going to do something almost kind of like obtuse because you get him... Uh, he gets punched in the face. His mm-hmm. glasses get broken, and it's kind of a close-up of like the the blood in his face from the impact of the glasses and the, the glass breaking. It's like on. a Straw Dogs moment, the like broken point of view thing, you know? Oh, you're right. Yeah, I bet that is an homage to Straw Dogs. Good point. And... Uh, and then I thought, well, maybe it's just going to, you know, do a close up on that and fade out. But instead, right. you know, they, they show you uh, like they do with a lot of other things in the film. They kind of show you the whole process and how it's so nonchalant for these people. And, and, and also that, like, one thing that was so uh, frightening, too, is that, like, it's almost more creepy that they don't stab him or shoot him or, or you know, yes. they just throw him in a bag and chuck him in the water. <laughs> well, you see him struggling and I don't. I don't know if they put a stuntman in there and immediately got him after they were done filming, right, but like yeah. it's so ah, just the, the both the way it's shot with all these these long long shots from a distance where you seem like you're it's very chilling, yeah, watching it very chilling and and just the everyone just feels like oh it's no big deal, you know it's implied they've done this another so many times office, before yeah. and yeah another day in the office right. Uh, and another thing I find fascinating is that yeah. we have another very complex, violent, and intricate gangster film. And again, not one bullet is fired. We mm, see some sure. guns, they pull some guns, and you're kind of thinking, like, ooh, are we going to get a few, you know, some gunplay? And no, this movie doesn't venture self-consciously so into John Woo territory, which I think is really, really fascinating uh, creative uh, turn from Johnny Toe. Yeah, it really, it really is uh, more knife play that we see, and not, and not overwrought like kung fu movie knife play. Like that, clearly there are some people who have had some training, but it's not like ele- it's not like elegant choreography. It, it is really yeah. quick, moment to moment fighting, where they're all trying to disable each other. Nobody wants to go through the trouble of murdering somebody, especially mm-hmm. when they they might bleed out anyway. It's all about disabling your foe, and like yeah. lots of Achilles tendons get cut in oh, this yeah. movie. Did and, anyone uh, else? There's at least three musical numbers in this movie that are performed in English. Yes. Yeah, that was. Um, I noticed the karaoke scene, but Matt, you picked up on a few. More uh, yeah, I, in yeah. in the beginning, um, I forget the context exactly where the scene is. I think they're perhaps in a bar or something. But you see uh, someone behind the microphone, and they perform um, a. Sinatra number. They also perform uh, before that in Spanish. They perform La Bamba, 
and like it, it's very kind of faint. You have to hear, you have to kind of listen out for it. But the one that makes it most clear is uh, in the middle of the film. Uh, they're at a bar, uh, kind of a lounge, and uh, the vocalist is singing uh, "House of the Rising Sun." Okay, I'm glad. I'm, yeah. I'm glad you brought this up because the the opening credit sequence of this film, I think, set sets this up because the op- opening credits, it's all these you know all these old photos that involve people from the triads, but they also yep. as as a character like recites this triad oath. Um, but among those photos are photos of British soldiers and survivors of British massacres during the colonial era, yeah. uh, back back when Britain controlled a good portion of China and and uh, and their control would lead to the creation of of Hong Kong. So there's all these echoes uh, and and fallout of imperialism that's set up just with these opening credits. And I think that's part of why those songs are used because this mm-hmm. this is, those scenes are take place in Hong Kong, uh, not uh, mainland China. And so, like this is this is a place where there are a huge mix of Eastern and Western influences, which is why we get that American pop music sung sung at this bar. And so much of this, so much of this movie is is about you know Jimmy Lee wanted to take his business to mainland China, but as Jimmy Lee falls under the thumb of that uh, that that federal inspector. Uh, you know that that really becomes more about China asserting its will over Hong Kong, possibly in the same yeah. way that the the British once did. And so, and like, that's it's, something... it's sorry, keep on. Oh no, and just just that you know, it, it I I think there's a suggestion you know of as Hong Kong you know Hong Kong being handed back to China. Uh, is it going to keep its identity as Hong Kong, or is it just going to become not not a part of China, but a a a colonial conquest of China. Right. And it's um, something that has not only been a part of Johnny Toe's career going all the way back to his debut at the Big Heat, um, it, all the way now, it's, uh, these are very, very political movies. And what I think is so fascinating is that, again, Jimmy's looking to expand his empire. Um, he wants to go legit. And again, he gets arrested. And the, um, and the, the officer basically says, like, you cannot perform business in, on the mainland. Like, you are forbidden from doing this thing you cannot expand your thing and he go basically alludes to he's like unless you're a chairman so basically you've got the authorities bullying him into becoming the chairman which he doesn't want to do and then you also have the triad elders bullying him to become chairman which he has expressed outwardly that he doesn't want to become that and you kind of see that this guy is getting it from all sides of the spectrum you know he's the police are even bullying him into being a chairman he's getting it from uncle tang especially who's like the the elder wise voice of reason you know and it really kicks off this interesting action, and this kicks off this very interesting political allegory for the film. Yeah, and, and that's what really gets things going. That's what puts him into the election. He just, okay, well, I'm a businessman. This will just be the deal that I cut to do business in mainland China. I'll run for, I will run for chairman. But it becomes so important for him to get that so that he can, you know, expand his business and can eventually go legit that he he goes to lengths that Locke wouldn't even go to. Oh yeah, no, he and he proves that. You know, he he really exposes another side of himself. You think he's this kind of, uh, you know, collected business type person, but he not only is more brutal, but he also he also enlists the help of a particularly brutal henchman who is uh, very much, uh, you know, a gun for hire, so to speak. So I get I guess we got We got to get to the kennel scene. So one of the most brutal yep. <laughs> and prolonged things in this movie is that uh, Jimmy rounds up a bunch of Locke's top people 
uh, chains them to very scary looking dogs and keeps them like locked in the kennel. And at this point, like we don't know whether this takes place over a day or several mm-hmm. days, but they're just kept kept in the kennel with these terrifying dogs. He'll bring them out like one. Or, he'll bring out like the the most steadfast one like in full view of all the other people in the kennels and would be like, and he'll throw a bunch of money at him, say, will you back me for chairman? And if they say no, he pulls out a sledgehammer and, uh, and, you know, breaks, breaks his hands when he runs out of, yeah. and he does this several times when he runs out of hands to break, he then beats him to death with the hammer. And then in the ultimate act Ooh. of brutality, he cuts him up, grinds him into meat and then serves that meat to the dogs in the cages with, with the other, with Locke's other, other men. Uh, and, you know, just clearly sort of setting them up to be man eaters. And this was the, this was okay. So as somebody who has, has quite literally made their own sausages, this was the one detail that bugged me is Mm. during this whole sequence, we see in the background, a leg being forced through the meat grinder. Yeah, oh. you can't just shove a whole limb through the meat grinder. <laughs> no. You have to flinch the meat from the bone because oh, yeah. while there are grinders that will grind up bones into meal, that's a different machine yeah. than the meat grinding machine. <laughs> you can't just throw it all in at once. Other right. than that, flawless I'll... film as far as accuracy goes. And finally, after this, you know, they drag the, like the blonde guy out, the guy with like the bleach blonde hair, and like, will you, will you throws throws the money? And like, will you, will you join me? They finally join them. They, they all have a big feast of not human meat, and they're all paid the bribe <laughs> money that all the other people turn down, but it's bribe money stained in blood. Like, it is designed Quite for literally. maximum psychological impact. Sure, and I mean, you mentioned that about you can't push a leg in there. I, um, I've um, i never made my own sausage, but I have, for a brief time, I worked at a steakhouse in the back of the house, and I did have to grind my own uh, hamburger meat out of, you know, both uh, beef you know, cow meat and bison meat. Hmm. And you can't just shove anything big in a grinder. You have to cut it up into smaller strips. And you do yeah. kind of, you can kind of jam it down to a point, but also those machines will jam. And, oh, yeah. And, 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 and these uh, meat grinder things are quite heavy, especially like the, the mm-hmm. older machines out of steel. Yeah, they're all it's, cast iron, mostly. They're cast or, iron. Yeah. I mean, you have to wash the pieces constantly. It's, uh, and the... You got to assemble it, kind of like a big piece of Legos. I, um, yeah, I hadn't thought about it in a long time, but you reminded me of that Thrasher, so I thought I'd bring up that tangent that's not really related to the film, as we tend to it's do a, on the show. It's a very uh... <laughs> helpful hint. But uh, before you uh, before you disassemble the machine to clean the parts before putting it back into storage, what you want to do is you want to run a few slices of bread through, and that's going to clear out all the remaining meat and most of the oil that will be clinging uh, to the parts. Or another that's... little uh, kitchen hack is that you take a long, long length of uh, plastic wrap, put it into a, a tie, and then shove that in there at the end, and it'll push out any residual matter hmm. out through uh, the deck. That's a good uh, tip. I mean... This has yeah. been the meat cast. Yeah, well, I mean, when, when we did, I, I still remember for some reason, you know, when we did the beef, we had to run that through twice to get, because they wanted a certain level of, of quality I, or, or maybe texture or something for the, the meat for the hamburger. But with the buffalo, you only had to do it once because it was of a, it could, maybe it was with the, the fat content or, or something, but, and it was a, uh, a chain there's not a lot of them. I think they're still just in the South. It's called Ted's Montana Grill. It's co-owned by Ted Turner. And oh, he, he bought a lot of land in the Midwest 
and it has all these buffalo. And then he proceeded to start a, a restaurant chain that used buffalo meat from land that he owned. Um, so way take to go, that. Ted Turner. What? As a way to go, Ted Turner. All right. I, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. And he it's co-owned with the fellow that owns uh, Longhorn Steakhouse. I never got to meet Ted Turner, but the Longhorn Steakhouse guy came at the opening to the restaurant. It was... Uh, Anyway, I'm not. Yeah, this is not the meat cast, nor is it the restaurant <laughs> cast. And well, as um, as we kind, of... Thrasher. Oh uh, yes. Well, so uh, another uh, another uh, whole part of this, of course, uh, the the black dragon rod uh, comes back because we know it's yes. going to be we know it's going to be important to things. And and yeah. the and uh, I'll start with the second part first. Uh, but like at at one point, uh, Locke, when Locke realizes he's got stiff competition for for chairman. Uh, through Jimmy and also knowing that the other uncles don't necessarily, though they like his, like the way he does business, don't necessarily want to hand him a second term in defiance of tradition. He yeah. hands the, he, he hands the rod to one of his top guys and, you know, says, okay, go, go to China, hide this, but also take the books. If I don't win the election, uh, I'm going to, th th that's my contingency plan is that he'll mm -hmm. know where the uh, rod is hidden and where the books for the triads business are hidden. Uh, and well, that also was... too, you can tell that uh, they established this in the previous film that that baton means a whole hell of a lot to these guys. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. it's not just a symbolic thing. It holds a lot of power and, if, and, and it's if you... probably just as important as the books. And if you haven't seen the the first film, there are some lingering shots of the baton during the opening credits. So, like you, you yeah. it sh the its psychological weight should be on you at, at this point. But but before then, we do see him recover the rod from where he's hidden it. But they don't tell you that's what's happening. The scene is almost inexplicable. Mm -hmm. He goes into this mortuary uh, where there are all these urns behind these like marble plaques. And there's one marble plaque, and I I wasn't sure who's maybe you can answer this question. Um, w there's a woman's picture on the marble plaque. Is right. that was that Big D's wife? That was my thought. I was like, it's too. We get too much of that. We get too much of her face to not think about it. For you know what I mean? Like, if it was just an anonymous whoever, you know, I don't think there would be so much of a of a lingering shot of the payoff. So I really do feel like that was Big D's wife because. I feel like there'd be some familiarity with that. However, if it was Big D's wife, desecrating her grave might bring unwanted attention to someone like Locke, who is an associate of Big D. I don't know. Maybe that's yeah, overthinking I, it. But I mean, it's weird because because like the because like I feel like the only other woman it could be would be Locke's wife because she doesn't exactly look like Big D's wife. Except we get no right. indication that Locke's wife is is dead. So it's it's I, I kept trying to puzzle out who that was supposed to be. But yeah, he just breaks. He breaks the the marble plaque, and lo and behold, he's got the the rod stashed behind the behind the urn, and just that that willingness to desecrate a grave really oh, yeah. really jumped out at me. And it's like, what's up, Indiana Jones? What are you doing here? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> smashing through this archaic, you know, uh, tomb of sorts. I, was, I I thought that was a really strange scene, but it was very um, very telling. And also, once it's like the thing glows without glowing, and this is how effectively they built this thing up over the over the past uh, movie. Um, and also you just see what a freaking schemer that Locke has become. So not only is he a proficient triad in, in terms of being a businessman, he's also a proficient triad in his ability to do horrible things to other people. <laughs> and that's especially revealed when he meets with, um, Uncle Tang. The big oh thing. yeah. He, he visits, he visits Uncle Tang and Uncle Tang had already had a scene where Uncle Tang, you know, had, had warned him, you know, you can't just violate tradition. You can't go for a second term. 
Uh, and Uncle Tang is also somewhat skeptical of Jimmy because even then, it's like you, you're too into going legit. Like you'll you'll yeah. turn your back on the triad as soon as your business deals are finalized. But yeah, when when Locke goes to visit uh, Uncle Tang, like you know, Uncle Tang, you know, once again gives his warning, and Uncle Tang goes to walk his dog, and Locke pushes him down the stairs. And this is one of those things I couldn't tell if this was actually Wong Tin Lam rolling down the stairs or mm. or an expert stuntman because right. they they linger on him going down the stairs and it looks like it looks like uncle tang and not a stuntman so yeah I, that's another thing i was looking at too and we get a second chance to glimpse it because locks a sadistic bastard and throws him down the second flight of stairs <laughs> oh, yeah. which is just horrifying and um it, it was kind of disturbing because um uncle tang's like one of the few, one of the few sources of warmth in these movies, you get that he's kind of like a very wise, collected elder. Yeah. And also, another scene that I like is that when he confronts Jimmy, you also see that Uncle Tang's a little scary. He kind of loses his temper with Jimmy a tiny bit. And I love the way Wang Ting Lam plays this. I think his performance is a really uh, brilliant use of just understated uh, seniority. And it's a really interesting character. And his demise is quite disturbing. Um, and also incredibly well-filmed. Well, he's a kindly, sage, grandfatherly figure who, nevertheless, you have no doubt he did some horrible things when he himself was chairman. Oh, yeah. And um, what I love, he says it so well. He goes, you know, I wanted a second term, too, when I was chairman. But, you know, I respectfully bowed down and, you know, you know, passed my pass pass the torch, uh, so to speak. And he's like, and that's what you need to do, Locke. You need to just, you know, respectfully walk away. And I think, like... Almost like in the first film when Big D says there can be two chairmen, when Uncle Tang says just walk away, that's like, no, I'm going to push you down a flight of stairs. <laughs> and uh, and Locke, uh, Simon Yam's performance in the film is just so great. But I, what I like is that you can tell that he's comfortable being chairman. He doesn't oh, want to yeah. leave. And he has this kind of kind of cool, relaxed kind of flair to him as other people are saying stuff. And it's like he's listening, but he's not really listening. He always has his eye on the prize. Yeah, he has this like very, very snarky uh, smirk on him for mm-hmm. a lot of these scenes, and you can tell he's just kind of talking out both sides of his mouth, and um, it really makes me feel bad for Jet, because once Jet confronts Jimmy, um, Jimmy kind of confronts Jet, and he's like, what are you doing, man? Like, He's like, can't you see why like, Locke's totally playing you, you know, and he kind of just gets out of the car, you know, when he, conf- when he tries to um, assassinate Jimmy and his girlfriend. Um, that and again, was a scene. Yeah, and you also you kind of feel for Jet, you know, you kind of he becomes a very empathetic uh, character. So, what do we feel about the ending of the film? Well, I it it's it's kind of it's 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 rather interesting because it at at one point you know Locke, you know there's a there's a there's a fight there's a chase uh, Locke gets Locke gets picked up by who he thinks are his his loyal followers. They are in fact the men who have been turned by Jimmy, and once he gets comfortable in the car. They just beat him to death with blackjacks. Oh yeah, it's savage. <laughs> you know, uh, Jimmy ends up like th- there's you know there's a meeting of the tribe uh, bosses. Uh, they all they all unanimously vote for Jimmy, but you can tell how many of them are only voting begrudgingly. Mm-hmm. Oh, Inclu- yeah. including like one of the the uh, I believe it's uh, was it Uncle Uncle Cocky who is back who like clearly only votes for him because he fears reprisal. Right. Uh, and, and you know, um, not and, only and, is it a, sorry. Oh, well, just that, that Jim, what I love, what I love is that 
you know, you, you don't expect a comeuppance in this kind of movie because because these these movies take place in a really morally ambiguous gray gray universe where evil and brutality are, are commonplace. And so I was kind of I was kind of delighted that Jimmy does have comeuppance. Uh, Jimmy is punished by being given everything he's ever wanted. So he becomes chairman. Uh, all of his business plans are approved. He goes back to that land where he wants to build his business and build his house and where there's going to be a highway connected to Hong Kong. And uh, the you know the, the federal inspector is talking to him. And the federal inspector says, well, this is great. You're his chairman. Uh, and you're going to continue being chairman. Uh, and you're going to dissolve this pointless voting system, uh, and you're going to make your children inherit your position, so that we can keep this deal going. And and you know, and Jimmy's like has this breakdown. Like, no, my kids are supposed to be legitimate. They're supposed to be doctors. Oh, yeah. They're supposed to be lawyers. They're not supposed to be gangsters. And he keeps punching the inspector. And the inspector just takes it and he punches oh, yeah. the inspector in the face until he himself is exhausted and falls down. He is laid low and the inspector doesn't have to throw a punch. And it's just so grim. But like he gets what what you think is going to be a moment of happiness when he reunites with his wife. And like then his wife says, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant. And he hugs mm-hmm. her. But you could tell on his mind he's just thinking of because of the compromises he made, the horrible life he's just inflicted on his child. Oh, hi. I was just shoveling more red hot takes into the old hardcore gaming 101 opinion furnace. <clears throat> Shaq Fu has some redeeming qualities. There's a lot of video game podcasts out there, but only HG101 has the code Jones to objectively, definitively, scientifically rank the top games of all time. No, it's definitely pronounced Co Jones. HG101's top games, twice a week, every week, right here on Greenlit. Hey everybody, this is Andrew from Superhero Stuff You Should Know, and we are proud to be the latest addition to the Greenlit Podcast Network. If you're a superhero fan, our show will put your knowledge to the test. Did you know Tim Burton almost made a Batman musical? Or how Superman almost had a love story with his own cousin? That's disgusting. But it's true. We cover it all, mixing clips with commentaries, sketches, and impersonations. So tune in to Superhero Stuff You Should Know, available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Oh yeah, it's such a chilling, um, it's such a low-key chilling ending. And the scene with the inspector and the news that he gets that basically not only is he going to be try a chairman, he's going to be like, you know, chairman for life and it's going to be multi-generational. And it's a very telling um, allegory to the power that mainland China would exert over Hong Kong. And it continues to to this day, which has actually led to riots of millions of people over um, extradition laws. And it's um it's a it's really kind of frightening the power that um the mainland can exert over hong kongers due to the um uh one country two systems act and just like and also like the attempted ferocity he tries to beat the inspector with and it just kind of it's like when you're trying you ever have those like dreams where you're trying to hit someone and it feels like you're underneath underwater yeah you know yeah mm-hmm. it, it feels like that for jimmy like he just mm. is inflicting pain going nowhere with it and the the dude who plays the inspector, Yu Young, has got this very, uh, very interesting like bulldog like feature too. Like you can tell he's also kind of a scary dude. And um, like you know, hats off to Johnny Toe for making such a such a strong political statement in a terrific like character study as a gangster film. And and there's a lot of coffin imagery uh, and a lot yes. of de- a lot of death imagery, a lot of coffin imagery in this film. And that's one of the things we see before before the big reveal of exactly what Jimmy has got, gotten himself into. You know, we see uh, Uncle Tang laid out in a coffin. 
and the and the black baton is put into the coffin with him and something something was wondering because we also see so much cremation imagery so part mm-hmm. of me had to wonder is uncle tang just going to be buried and that's the new hiding place or is he going to be cremated and the baton was put there knowing it would be destroyed sort of yeah, symbolically a... destroying the old tradition Exactly. That's kind of what I thought, too, is that it's, again, like the, the death of tradition, the death of honor, almost something we saw in the, the Yakuza papers of, you know, the loss of honor and humanity amongst thieves, you know, is that this um, this is a new era and it's uh, one we don't really want, but didn't really ask for. And it's going to be bad. <laughs> and yet the thing with the pregnancy at the end, I was reminded a bit of uh, Godfather 2, where there's sort of a a plot twist where um oh god was it is her name Kay in the movie is that Kay, yeah uh, yeah k is is pregnant but then she has an abortion because she doesn't want a child to be born that'll be a gangster just like the father right uh, it's getting some memory of that but i mean yeah what an unexpected way to end a film and uh just just the look on uh jimmy's face at the end is uh it makes me wonder what they'll do for a part three. You, you mentioned, has it been filmed yet, Alex? Or what I do you know about that? I want to say it's in post-production because this was slated for like 2018, then it was for 2019, now it's 2020, now it's 2021. Mm. So I think that I want to say the film is made. Um, when we're ever going to see it is another uh, conversation. But um, I mean, I've been you know, lurking around the letterboxed uh, profile for, for like, you know, two, three years now. So I feel like a lot of it's been shot. Um, so I don't really know. It's got a terrific cast, though. Um, and some uh, recurring guys coming back. And uh, it's, Good. yeah, I'm fascinated what we're going to get because it's so much is going on, especially in China in the past few years. Um, once again, regarding like extradition and the power of the mainland over Hong Kong, as well as COVID and a whole lot of other things. Does Hong Kong want independence or... Oh, basically, um, Hong Kongers were um, are basically at the subject of uh, Beijing being able to basically extradite people from the former crown colony and are subject to uh, the socialist police and government laws that exist in, in the mainland, which are vastly different from what uh, due process is done in Hong Kong. So Sorry, more strict, I, I imagine. Look crazy. Yeah, exactly. You can be detained okay. and you know clobbered and what have you. Interesting. All right, Sorry, yeah, um, but yeah, overall, you know, I'd give Election uh, 2, or Triad Election, as it's known here, uh, a sequel, yes, I think it's, uh, I mean, it, although it has a lot of characters to me, for some reason it felt more more intimate than the first one, and it could just be because mm. we just watched the first film and were introduced to a lot of these characters already, but I I like how, although the overall plot is is kind of similar, it's it's done in a different way you know you could keep these movies going on forever and uh, as long oh, as yeah. it's good with this one i'm okay with that sequel yes uh thrasher you know de- definitely sequel yes i would love i would love to see more of this i would love to see the the fallout of uh of jimmy's uh, of, of jimmy being now forced to eat break even more traditions they're they're and I, you know, I'd love to see uh, how it will comment on the current political climate. I mean, th- this was th- this was a great experience. I want to see what could happen next. And Alex, uh, yeah, definite big time uh, sequel. Yes, and upon revisiting it in preparation for the show, I mean, so much more came out to me. Um, you know, I I think I had grasped the political metaphors before, but I think now 
uh, given everything that's going on in China, it's got a, it just, it, it, it has such a, you know, booming resonance. Um, and it's a fascinating film. And it's also there, these two films are very much a contrast to Johnny Toe's other work is that you do have a lot of gunplay in Johnny Toe's other films and you do have more traditional, um, you know, action stylism in, in his other movies. But these ones are very, very lean and mean and um, intentionally so. And I, I really commend his uh, creative instincts in both these films, uh, especially. Right. Um, so with that in mind, let's do uh, pitch a sequel. And what, what I would do for this one is uh, I would set it in the future, not not the future like in space or something, but you talk about Jimmy's son is going to be set to uh, be the next uh, chairman of uh, the uh, Sheen Society. And as part of that, they're although that's what they established is how the election, you know, how the process is going to be. Um, some, some uh, upstarts, you know, want to change it and think that's unfair and they want kind of more, more new blood in there. And you kind of have the, the lead being Jimmy's new son having this thing foisted upon him, but, but he doesn't really want it, but he has to, and he's kind of a, a constant target. Because other people want that role instead. And I would just call it election, uh, maybe election junior. <laughs> election babies! <laughs> I just picture like tiny tunes, but like, you know, a bunch of like triads running around and hacking each other up. <laughs> it would just all be about the different uncles. First there's Uncle Cocky, then there's Little Brother Snake, Uncle Dead <laughs> Dog, and Uncle Lawn Gun. <laughs> they lock us in the tower whenever we get caught and don't go fishing yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> i'm sorry i've got a mental cat going on that, that's here. that's fine he's uh why don't you go alex what's your pitch a sequel um so my pitch a sequel is going to take place uh like the last film shortly after the, the the second one and um a very despondent jimmy um you know after being uh begrudgingly elected and finding out that he's going to have a son uh, faded to a life of crime with him. He he goes to a hotel bar to drown his sorrows, and then um, a friend of his uh, sits across from him at the bar and you know strikes up a conversation and says, you know, hey buddy, you look really sad. What's going on? He goes, well, you know, he, he, he explains to him, and then in the midst of explaining this, he goes, oh my god, you're Jimmy. You're Jimmy, the porn king of Hong Kong. Guys, I I, I can't I can't believe it. I'm sitting in the presence of greatness, and it turns out. The guy says, ah, the, the, the Hong Kong porn convention's going on right now at the, at the convention hall. I've got legions of people who would love to meet you. Jimmy the Porn King, wow. So Jimmy says, well, wait, what the hell, right? I got a fan base. So he goes over and, you know, they, they're carrying him around. He's crowd surfing. They're, they're, everyone's chanting his name, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy. And then, you know, they're like, speech, speech. And, and, and Jimmy goes like, look, you know, he, he reveals that. He's like, this isn't like a passion of mine. It was just a way of making money. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a triad, you know, I, I want to go legit. And then the crowd turns on him with the vicious ferocity. It's like Todd Browning's freaks, you know, they're all chanting a goobble gobble porn king. And then they um hmm. they, they mutilate him and make him eat, you know, chocolate covered porno and all this other stuff. And it's called um um Election Three, uh the fate of Jimmy Porn King.
I think that's the longest uh, non <laughs> Wi-Fi related silence we've had on the show. <laughs> yes, excuse me. I I just had to, the chocolate covered porno. I could not. My mind went to strange places there. Uh, Thrasher, Alex, your pitch is a little too plausible. I suppose. Um, Thrasher, what's your pitch? A sequel. So mine's going to be uh, my sequel is going to be uh, all about. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be uh, all about uh, Uncle Tang's dog. Uh, who it's basically, it's basically going to be like a baby's day out, but it's all about, well, what happens to uncle Tang's dog? I mean, I was happy to know that the dog did get fed and survived the first film. Uh, and so uncle Tang's dog out of respect to uncle Tang and everyone loves that dog. Everyone in the triads wants to take care of it. So essentially it's the dog doing dog stuff, but continually wandering through just more triad brutality. So we will learn by implication, some of the fallout of the deals and the compromises and the breaks from tradition Jimmy has made. But it's just this dog doing adorable, cute, comical dog stuff while people die all the time. And whoever his current owner is always ends up dying in a horrible way. And then Tang's dog gets passed uh, to a different owner or caretaker. <laughs> uh, and in fact... Like and the and in fact the dog will on occasion try to save his caretaker by doing some adorable wow. dog thing like you know like dropping a ball or something that causes a hitman to trip on it and the gun misfires but it'll always end up escalating the violence. Is it Bobby Lee the voice of the dog? You know why not? Yeah. Okay. And why what would not? you call it? Uh, I will. I'll call it. Uh, I'm going to call it. Uh, Election, election three, uh, dog day afternoon. <laughs> okay. I was thinking you would call it woof, 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 and then in parentheses, election three. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's been so many dog movies, but uh, has there been one just called woof, woof? No, that's... and that's right. There's one no, called a... Chomps. So. <laughs> yes, that's an acronym yes, for the ro that's a robot killer dog or something, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I think like the only live action movie directed by Hanna Barbera. Oh, that's that. Yeah, okay, that one's not about the killer dog. That's the. Uh, it's kind of a yeah smart robot dog. It's like a. Oh my god, that's that's the sitcom where the little sister's a robot. Oh, small wonder. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, on onto what you're watching. I was uh, flipping through. You were mentioning Amazon Prime earlier, Alex. I was flipping through Amazon Prime. Had had time to watch something short, and I, I watched. Uh, this is a documentary about an actor I don't even really like, but I, I wanted to see what it was like. And it's called Polly Shore Stands Alone. It's from 2014, oh, wow. directed by Polly Shore, um, as you can guess, kind of starring Polly Shore. And it follows him on a tour of the Midwest in, in these kind of smaller comedy clubs. And for those that don't know, uh, Polly Shore was really really famous in the 90s on MTV, but also his mother is uh, Mitzi Shore, who started the uh, Comedy Club. Oh, the Comedy Store? Excuse me, thank you. Comedy Store. Oh, One cool. of the premier, uh, now it's like legendary comedy, stand-up comedy places in Los Angeles. So he goes to the Midwest because that's where his parents met, and Mitzi Shore is almost dead. We don't see her, we just hear her. But she has, um, I think, like Alzheimer's and can't quite remember stuff. And so he kind of wants to... He, although he's 45, he, he's thinking, maybe I should have a child. I don't really know what I want to do. I'm, he, I don't know. He thinks he can kind of rediscover his roots. And yet a lot of it, it kind of 
this almost feels like there should have been a reality series instead of a movie because it, you can mm. see him going to different clubs and things. And uh, even though Polly Shore directed it, uh, he comes mm -hmm. off as a bitter, bitter man. Uh, huh. Near the end, he, uh, I forget what city he's at, but he, he goes to this kind of bigger venue and it has like the big theater and the little theater. Polly Shore's in the little, little theater. The comedian in the big theater is Bill Burr. And Polly Shore's like, no one's heard of Bill Burr. I'm the one that should have that. I had all the movie career, and I, I, sh I should be Adam Sandler. He shouldn't have all the hits. Oh, my goodness. And I... to see him a bit stripped down and, and kind of less cartoony than his kind of weasel thing, hey, buddy, uh, mm -hmm. kind of gag he did in the 90s, I think is, is kind of neat. But at the same time, he just comes off as scummy. He complains that he can't get laid while doing stand-up oh comedy, and he eventually ends up sleeping with the booker for one of the gigs he's uh. at. Um, and e even worse, like, when they first, the booker, you know, says, okay, this is your hotel room, and we got all this stuff here. If you need to call us, here's my number. Polly Shore just immediately lays on the bed. He says, you know, I feel a lot of sexual energy here. Oh, and my goodness. She just isn't creep. having it uh, at that time. Later, they do end up... Um, fucking i imagine but it I, I would think if i was going to direct a documentary about myself i would try to make myself come off as good as possible so i think that's kind of interesting he comes off as kind of scumbaggy in this but yeah it's, it, it's interesting from that perspective but like i i don't um at, at the end i don't think it really comes to a, a central point or a central theme mm -hmm. you, you just see even people like Polly shore or even well-known comedians do these kind of smaller places if they're a road comic where you're eating like bad fried food from the bar yeah. and being introduced kind of yeah i think that's the intention it doesn't quite have a good thematic kind of line running through it but it, it, it's right. not it's not bad it's kind of interesting it's on amazon prime in the united states currently they originally premiered on showtime in 2014 called Polly shore stands alone mm. I think like when you started t talking about it, I was like, you know, I, I started thinking, I was like, I would like to see like a more revealing personal side of Polly Shore. And then after, <laughs> at the end of, uh, your, at the end of your uh, synopsizing, I, I was like, actually, I don't want to see this other side of Polly Shore. <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. Do you have any thoughts on Polly Thrasher? Uh, no, just that. This is a fast, certainly a fascinating subject, but I guess you know, I, I, whenever I hear that name, I just immediately want to go the weasel. And he basically played that a version of that character in the Goofy movie, right? Uh yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> Effectively, yes, he really played up that persona. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, it is fascinating to see him grow and to see that you know the persona is not necessarily him; it was something crafted for comedic effect, but. But, you know, like like a lot of comedians who become famous for doing one thing, you kind of get trapped by it. It's like the same the same thing with like with with Dave Chappelle. The the Rick James sketches were goddamn brilliant, but that's only like what two percent of his career. And then he can't do a show without people just screaming, you know, do do Rick James, Rick yeah, James, I'm bitch. Burps, you know. to, well, to the point yeah, where he I... will kick people out of his own shows, which... Uh... Right. I think that's the way to do it if you have hecklers is... I mean, or you can do the opposite, which is what Jerry Seinfeld does, in which he, he's as nice to them as possible, and he does the same with the paparazzi. Um, well, I, I saw Jim Gaffigan several years ago, and people were screaming out, Hot Pocket! You know, right off the bat. And he saved that bit until the very end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, 
that which is probably closer. what you want to do. Actually, I've even got one of his comedy albums where where and I've I've heard him do this more elaborately too, where he just we're just like in the middle of the set, he just goes, Okay, I know why you're really here, and then just goes straight into hot pockets. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and and speaking of stand up, you know, Gaffigan on, on Amazon Prime has some good bits with um I think it's two specials, maybe it's more, but one is in Spain and one is in Canada. And so he's trying to do kind of comedy about these countries he hasn't really spent much time in, which is as someone who's been to neither of those places. I think it's sort of funny what the yeah. I'm more interested almost in what the audience laughs at than, than what he's saying. Um, OK, yeah, Thrasher, what point of view? Yep. Uh, Thrasher, what's something you've been watching? Well, this wasn't what I was going to talk about. But since we're talking about Jim Gaffigan, I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. I saw. Uh, you may remember this from from uh, from last year, uh, but there was a new Scooby Doo series, Scooby Doo and Guess Who, which is a throwback to the new Scooby Doo movies, where every episode was Scooby Doo teaming up with someone like Sonny and Cher, celebrity, or Batman, yeah. uh, Laurel and Hardy. So they did a revival called Scooby Doo and Guess Who. Uh, I watched the Jim Gaffigan episode. Oh, uh, oh, how does his likeness look? Do they make him look skinnier? He no, not really. And in fact, that's that's the whole plot point is that the, the plot point is that there's this like chain of there's a small chain of like 1950s style burger joints uh, on the uh, on the West Coast that uh, it's like their 50th anniversary or, or whatever. And so to celebrate, they're doing an eat an eating contest contest slash race where you have to do an eating contest and then drive to the next restaurant to do the next part of the eating contest. And Jim Gaffigan is basically like, he is playing himself, but it's sort of like a food jock version of himself that has mm. entered the contest and is really cocky and is insisting that he's going to beat Scooby and Shaggy in this eating contest slash relay race. <laughs> fascinating so is each episode like an hour long like those old um celebrity episodes were uh they are no they're about they're about 30 minutes uh they they're <laughs> they're not okay. they're not that long I've, I've i've watched a few of them this was just you know my love for jim gaffigan has been reignited due to recent events and so i decided to check to check it out since I oh with this twitter stuff gotcha yeah um with oh, what do you call it i wanted to watch uh, mark hamill there's one where it's Batman and the Joker, where he did the yes. Joker, but then Mark Hamill did one where he's himself, but he's visiting the school he went to in high school when he was in Japan. Um, as a kid, he moved around a lot, I think, because his father was in the, the Navy or something uh, like that. But it's it sounded like Mark Hamill had a lot to do with kind of helping with the story of that episode, which intrigues me. But cool, yeah. Sounds like it's recommended. And um, who voices uh, Shaggy nowadays? Ah, uh, let me see. Shaggy is it Lillard uh, or no? Uh, actually, I'm, I'm checked. Oh yeah, it is Matthew Lillard. Uh, Good. Got him back. Okay. Oh yep. cool. <clears throat> Although in oh, the new Scooby Kate is Velma. Oh oh, right. that's great. And uh, but that's as cool. um, how do you say it? In in the new Scooby CG cartoon that just came out, it's not Matthew Lillard as Shaggy. It's yeah, uh, that seems like a mistake. Yeah, totally. Yeah, he's so uh, he's so good. There, or, there was some bit they did, might have been just for Cartoon Network, but it was Matthew Lillard as himself talking to the animated Shaggy with Casey Kasem still voicing Shaggy. Oh, wow. That's great. And he's defending why people don't like the Scooby-Doo live-action movies. <laughs> which, uh, which we covered. 
It, we did. We did. We did. That uh, is very funny. It's a shame they never did a third one with that cast because that second one, it seemed like they were really uh, finding that they finally found a tone. I think that kind of worked. Mm. But and uh, Alex, what's something you've been watching? Um, I watched uh, one of my uh, an old favorite of mine that I hadn't seen in years, and it's um, arguably in my my argument is that it's one of my favorite and maybe best Peter Jackson film, uh, The Frighteners. Oh, oh yes, sure. Uh, Michael with J. Michael Fox. J. Fox and yep. um, Jeffrey Combs and I mean everybody, it's uh, it's such a fascinating movie. It's so bold and funny and weird and scary and freaky. And um, and what I noticed too is that what I love about the film is that it kind of does the like it follows like the Ryan Murphy adage of the movie needs to do whatever it needs to do to be the movie. You know, like if if ghost bolts work on the phantom guy, then ghost bolts work. If, uh, you know, Arlie Ermey needs to come out and be a drill sergeant for some reason, then he's going to come out and be a drill sergeant for some reason. Um, If you can freeze yourself like, you know, uh, like that Heartstopper movie to fight ghosts, then you can freeze yourself to, you know, fight ghosts. It's it's so zany and crazy, and the special effects are, um, for the most part, hold up. They're a little dated, but whatever. Um, They're terrific. It's so much fun to watch and look at, and... um, and I forgot about the whole character of uh, the old sh- uh, sheriff guy who's like, you know, decomposing and he's uh, shooting, you know, six, playing us six shooters around. It's it's such a fascinating, wild, fun movie. And uh, it makes you kind of um, it really makes the uh, the tragic turn of Michael J. Fox's um, Parkinson's all the more uh, frustrating because he's so damn good in it, too. Can you notice a bit of the Parkinson's in it at all or not really? I think since I've seen footage of him in the present day. Uh-huh. In hindsight, I can look back and be like, ooh, okay. That, a you little know, bit of the shakiness. It it's up. sad. It, it, is, it is, you know, kind of... It, it's interesting that... Uh, oh, gee. It was over five years ago, but there was a time when he was trying to do a sitcom. He had his own sitcom again, and Robin Williams had his own sitcom again. And mm-hmm. they both were going through health issues at the time. And it was... At the one side, it was cool to see those guys have a lead role on tv again but on the other right. side with their their health it was kind of painful to watch mm, yeah i can see that and like there were some scenes here where i'm kind of like oh i think that's why they framed it this way or oh i i don't think that's him turning his head into frame i think that's actually just the parkinson's um and it's really sad because michael j fox has got like He's a good actor, but he's got this, like, very, it's like what I call just, you know, he just got great screen presence. He's, like, a really interesting yes. guy to watch on screen. He's very uh, charismatic and very charming. Um, but, yeah, the movie it's, itself is just, it's so crackerjack crazy. Um, and just it does not light up for a second. Uh, so much fun to watch, yeah. And um, I don't know if the DVD has it. The Blu-ray has it. A three-hour documentary on the making of the Frighteners that was originally on the Laserdisc. Oh, that is so cool. I'm going to gnaw on that. Yeah, if you have that version of it, it it's worth watching because it, it might not be the first time he did it. It's the first time I know it, but it's definitely in the same vein as his uh, Lord of the Rings and Hobbit documentaries that just oh, cool. really dig in there for longer than most people would care to watch. But they're well done and very much fly in the wall. Uh, they're, they're willing to make themselves look bad, which I think is always a nice, a good uh, marker of a behind-the-scenes documentary. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, <laughs> it's um, but yeah, what a what a crazy uh, fun film. I yeah, I have, think, uh, I have not seen the movie in a long time. I should dig that up. Thrasher, what do you think about the Frighteners? I I really really enjoy it. Jeffrey Combs is a, a tour de force performance. Uh, oh, yeah. It is it is perfect casting of Jake Busey. Uh, 
like I mean the movie's just like it's it's an amazing it's an amazing cast. It absolutely oh, is. Yeah. Like Mike, Michael J. Fox is the biggest name in it, but he's the perfect person to play his character. I just and I just I love everyone else. I love that it's full of people you wouldn't expect. Uh but like B a lot of B movie stalwarts are in it. Oh yeah. Including and, the guy uh, that played Charles Adams on the Adams Family show. Yeah, as, as the hanging judge, the cowboy ghost. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so who great. has who oh. has one of the best and dirtiest jokes in film. <laughs> Why don't you regale <laughs> us with that joke that. if you remember? Okay, so so there's a whole like there's there's a whole like fight with the evil ghost that happens in a museum, uh, and as part of the fight, the cowboy ghost like a coffin falls on top of the cowboy ghost. But of course, he's a ghost; he just goes through it. Uh, and then later on in the fight, like I think like right as the fight is finally resolved. Um, like the the lid of the coffin opens up and he's on top and he's like on top of the mummy and he stands up and as he stands up he says, you know I like it when they just sort of hold still like that, oh. <laughs> implying that this ghost fucked that mummy. Right. Yeah, that was over my head when I first saw this. <laughs> now, I'm like, oh god. <laughs> Very quotable uh, though. I love when Jeffrey Combs like rips open his shirt. He's got all the ritualistic scarrings oh, and just goes, geez. my body. Is a roadmap of pain. And he thinks he's uh, guiding the car, but it's actually going in reverse thanks to Michael J. Fox being so It's like when you describe this movie, it sounds like it's coming from a, you know, from, it sounds just so you know, and crazy that it can't be true, but it is. It's, it's so, it's so, it's so out there. Um, well, and, and eventually the, uh, or originally the, uh, the Frighteners was pitched to Robert Zemeckis as a Tales from the Crypt movie. Right, right, and, and I, I guess I can see that. Those are so always, always kind of like, a, like, a, like an expert in the front, in the front of the cast. cast. Um, um, but what I like, what I like here is that kind of comes from. I notice, I notice there's this era of like the nineties when you had kind of like this like Tim Burton inspired, like family friendly, friendly gothic type thing, like family family, like you know, you know, family. It's, it's uh, uh yeah the fact yeah, so, so, so it's it's it's, it's, it's really interesting nineties era of um of just like just very, like, you know, you know spooky, spooky but funny funny using his own sounds. Oh, hello. Sorry, I was on mute. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, Alex, can you unplug and replug your headset real quick? Yeah. Just want to see if that'll fix it. And say something. Going into uh, how do I sound now? Better. Oh, much better. Okay, that's cool. Quick Sorry, back. Uh, that's fine. Um, all right, so let's uh, do the sequel scene. Uh, it only has two characters, but it's sort of a Jimmy is being told the business about uh, why he can't do work uh, in the mainland um who wants to be mr she and who wants to be jimmy uh i'll do mr she okay alex you want to be jimmy i can be jimmy yeah great and uh, yeah. go yeah and mr she is that federal inspector so yeah. that's right from now on you're welcome in china as a tourist but you can't do business here why it's our policy mr shu is also a gangster why can he do business in china we made a deal, and he's a patriot. I can make a deal. I can be a patriot. What's your rank in Wu Sing? Not its chairman? If I run for chairman, will you give me what I want? 
And so begins the downfall of Jimmy. Oh, Jimmy the Pawn King. There we go. So, um, yeah, next time on Sequel Cast 2, I'm going to throw a bit of a monkey wrench in the works. I think we need to do kind of like an aperitif. We sometimes do like a movie that is a sequel to stuff we've talked about in the past that we didn't get to cover. And so uh, next week, we're going to take a look at um, Rambo Last Blood, the extended cut. It's on Amazon Prime. Oh, very cool. And after that, we'll be looking at the Crow movies. Nice. For Halloween. Spoopy season. I I feel like we've done more sequel catch-ups for Stallone movies than anything else. He keeps on doing sequels. Uh, Sounds about right. (laughs) We've done two Creed movies. Uh, Yeah, I've done a lot. So there you go. The man loves the sequels. What can I say? (laughs) So for... Yep, uh, for he keeps on threatening an Expendables four, but I don't know if that'll oh, happen right. at this point. Everyone's so old; they're gonna have to like throw dentures at the bad guys. You know? <laughs> it's an empty threat. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. Um, although I mean, the cast he gets for those is always incredible. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you can follow the show uh, on Twitter at SequelCast Two. Um, leave us a good review on the Apple Podcast app. All that stuff helps with the rankings, and for uh, Follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. And uh, I have nothing to uh, to plug at uh, the moment. So, yeah, go to SequelCast2.com to, to catch up on the old episodes. Uh, sure. you, can, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Also, don't forget to support my Kickstarter, the Puppy Dragon Enamel Pin Kickstarter. Uh, just search for Puppy Dragon Enamel Pins or follow the Kickstarter link that is currently in my pinned tweet on at Internet Mayor. Have you hit the goal yet? Uh, we are like $12 away right now. Nice, nice. Okay, so t- hopefully you'll hit that and get on to the stretch goals. Make a oh, zillion yeah. all the pins you want. Uh, Alex? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at CrabNebula1914. And if you drop by my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project, um, you can see some cool new stuff we posted. Um, doing a lot of horror-themed uh, spooky montages set to music. Um most recently by uh, Swans. Um, so if you're a Swans fan or if you like cool, spooky stuff, check it out. Great. Yeah, I recognize the the sort of featured picture is from Exorcist 3, where they uh, they go to um, a place that has a lot of cameos like Samuel L. Jackson and Fabio as angels. Yeah, very interesting, uh, very interesting film. Um, and a very interesting episode of uh, sequel cast lore. Oh. Yeah, the, the book is also good. Um, yes, I really want to read that. Uh, Legion, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, Legion. very cool. Um, I still haven't seen that other cut that's on the Blu-ray. I heard that's pretty good. It's good, but the thing is is that they have to incorporate a lot of like choppy VHS footage into it, so it can yeah, kind of take out. Super yeah, geez. But more Brad Dourif is never a bad thing. Um, exactly. So for uh, every sequel cast, too, uh, you know, next time we'll be looking at the uh, extended cut of Rambo, Last Blood, awful title. Um, <laughs> for sequel cast two, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. And this is Alex. Saying, I had nothing to do with it. It was all Jimmy. Step down from your tenure as chairman with respect and bow out wonderfully.